Okay, my name is uh, Veronica Valley, and the book is called Soberful, Uncover a Sustainable, Fulfilling Life Free of Alcohol. Are talking this morning with Veronica Valley and uh, about her book Soberful. And you are sober f- for 20 years. What was your life like before that happened? I'm actually coming up to 22 years of sobriety. Oh, um, all right. Congrats. Yeah, uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I want to say the easiest way of putting it was a little bit of a train wreck. On, on the outside, my life, I looked fairly normal. I was 27 when I got sober, so I was quite young. And then I was, you know, a party girl, but I graduated from college and never been fired from a job. So on the outside, I looked like I was doing all right. But on the inside, I wasn't. I was very lonely. I had incredibly low self-esteem, a lot of anxiety and fear. And alcohol just helped with all of that. It was an aid. And that excessive drinking just led to more problems. So by the time I got sober, I was really ready. But the, the biggest effect for me was the associated mental health problems, panic attacks, depression, and all of that cleared up once I stopped drinking. But that was really the hardest stuff to deal with. I think we can all relate in some way. I was thinking in reading your book about the walk of shame is what we used to call it. I love the um, part where you talk about sobriety giving you more bandwidth. When you think about all the wasted hours when you you were smashed. Yeah, I mean, being drunk is really glamorized. I mean, it's really something that is romanticized and glamorized in our culture. But what no one ever talks about is the cost. Is what is the cost to that? And there was always a cost for me, not just money, uh, time, cost to quite often my dignity and my integrity, but also my bandwidth. And yeah. bandwidth is basically when you struggle with alcohol you do four things. You drink, you think about drinking, you think about not drinking, and you recover from drinking. And that takes up energy and space in your head. And for me, it took up a considerable amount, maybe 40 or 50%. You know, I wasn't living, Mm -hmm. I I was existing, because I was always arguing with myself about whether I was going to drink or am I drinking too much? Or do people notice? Blah, 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 blah. And that's not what any of us came here to do. You know, we did not come here to, and it's because alcohol becomes the main event. So I think the biggest price, and I see this a lot, and I think it's one of the greatest tragedies, is in our bandwidth. And, you know, when you're in your 20s, it doesn't feel like anything, because when you're in your 20s, you feel like you can do anything. You know, you feel superhuman, you can party all night and work all day. But that gets old really, really quickly. And our capacity to do that is over pretty quickly. I wasn't able to fulfill my potential when I was renting out bandwidth to my relationship with alcohol. And yet you probably told yourself, oh, it isn't that bad. Yeah. And that's very easy to do because that's one of the rationalizations that people do when, when you're struggling with alcohol is, you know, you have this, this feeling that, that there's a problem and then our brain's like, well, it's not that bad. It's not. And, and we think people with an alcohol problem are homeless people. Those are people who have an alcohol problem. But if we have a mortgage and a car and we go on a nice vacation, how can we have a problem with alcohol? But that is where the problem lies. And I think that's the whole thing. It's very ill-defined, very ill-defined what is a problem and what isn't an alcohol problem. We can always find someone worse than us. It's really easy to find someone who's worse about their problem, but I'm not anything like that. Therefore, I'm okay. What is it like to be around others once you've decided, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to drink anymore? And yet you have to be around other people who are drinking, whether it's just a glass of wine or drinking cocktails. Do you have any tips for 
once you decide to stop drinking, how you can handle that? Yeah, that's a really good question because we do live in a wet world. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, uh, alcohol yeah. is not, not just everywhere. It's inserted into nearly every situation. Celebration, alcohol accompanies that. And it's even inserting itself into places it doesn't belong. Like I, I've been seeing yoga studios offer yoga and wine evenings. There's nothing about those two things that go together. I want to say it's a process and the early days are not how it is long term. That's kind of the one thing I really want to impart to people is early sobriety, which is I'm going to say the first 12 months-ish. It's a bit different for everybody. It's not like that's not how it is long term. The, the first 12 months so ingrained in our culture. Everyone assumes that you drink. So for me, I had to stay out of bars and clubs and all that kind of stuff in the beginning because it just felt very triggering. And the purpose that I went there for was to get drunk and I, I wasn't going to do that. But when I was about 11 months sober, I went out to a bar club that with some sober friends because I wanted to go dancing because I love to dance and I'm sociable. And it was weird. It was very strange. And then I did it again, and then I did it again, and then it was just normal. So I think that it's the biggest thing I say to people is don't just like continue your life as you did before, but order a Diet Coke instead, because you have to make some changes because triggers are very, very powerful. And we may need to stay away from situations at the beginning. But I also want to reassure people once you feel a bit more solid and, you know, living an alcohol free life, you can go and do anything. And, you know, getting sober at 27, I've done everything. I went night clubbing in my late 20s. I've been to music festivals. I've been on vacation. I've been to weddings. I've done all the things that alcohol is associated with. And I've done them all sober and they've been better. So I also want to add, we're starting to see a real expansion in the alcohol free market. Yeah. Really great alcohol free wines alcohol-free mixes and spirits that I'm really enjoying because there's also times where you want a special drink. Mm -hmm. There is mm -hmm. like a dinner or whatever where I don't want a Diet Coke or a Brooklyn water. I'd like a special fancy drink. And that market's really exploding right now. So, And it's also a great way if people, because people will sometimes pressure you while you're not having a drink, they'll just look at your glass and assume that you are. Why do people do that? They seem personally offended sometimes if you say, no, I, I don't want to drink. Even if you aren't battling with it, if you say, I, I don't want to drink. And why do they feel that it's okay, first of all, to pressure you or be personally affronted if you say you don't want to drink? Yeah, it's really interesting. My goal, my mission in my work and with this book is I want to normalize being alcohol free. If you think 40 years ago, if you were a vegetarian, people thought that was a wacky thing and it was maybe going out for dinner would have been a challenge. Now I can go anywhere and I can be vegan, gluten-free, dairy-free, nut-free, and I'm catered for. And people also understand that and don't think it's weird. And nobody comes up to you and says, if you're gluten-free, nobody will come up to you and say, go on, have a bread roll. Have a bread roll. It's Friday. <laughs> With alcohol, people culturally, we have a very ingrained belief that alcohol is the best way to have fun, excitement, belonging, connection, to relax and to reward yourself. So when you say, I'm not drinking, people don't hear that you're not drinking. People hear that you've said, I volunteer to never have fun. And that's why they're like, go on, have a drink. Because they're like, Cause that's the best way to have fun, right? We all agree that. That's the rule. It also, we typically surround ourselves with people who drink similarly to us. And it upsets the apple cart. Because if you're saying, oh, I don't want to drink. I'm going alcohol free. This doesn't agree with me. It's not good for my health. But I don't like myself when I drink. What does that say about my drinking? 
people interpret that very personally. And I think it's really because we're culturally signed up to a belief system that no longer serves us. And somebody is holding up a mirror saying, actually, I'm, I'm having a much better time not drinking. I like myself. I'm feeling better. I've got so much more energy. I'm getting stuff done. I'm really reconnecting with my friends. If we believe that alcohol is the best way, but someone is showing us somewhere different, it's really quite, can be quite disturbing. Well, but what business is it of any, anybody's that judgment should be passed? You're, you're absolutely right. I think it's the fun thing. I think it's because we believe alcohol is the best way to have fun. People are like, I care about you. I want you to, like, it's Friday night. It's my birthday. It's a wedding. I want you to have fun. And you are saying you're not drinking. So that's not going to be possible. I, I think it's that. But you, you're right. It's the only thing that people do take personally and make their business. That's something to navigate when you stop drinking. I, I don't think I've met many people who haven't had pushback from the people around them. And sometimes often it's families because that's yeah. what they do in families. When they yeah. get together, that's what we do. We drink. And I think also people feel judged that there's a judgment, that there's a piety to being alcohol free. And again, that's people's interpretation. That's not the truth, but I think people can interpret it that way. I want to talk about your five pillars because I think they're very important. But before we get there, is Alcoholics Anonymous passe? Are people looking at AA and thinking, you know what, there should be or there is a better way to get sober? I don't think so at all. I think Alcoholics Anonymous has been a vital pathway mm -hmm. for generations. And it's important to add, it's open to everybody and it's pretty much free. So there's very low barriers to entry. But I do believe there should be different routes because not everything works for everybody. And the five pillars of sobriety that I designed based on my therapeutic work as a therapist, that's what it is. It's the therapeutic work. So you can be in AA and work the five pillars or you can, they stand alone or you could be in smart recovery or women's sobriety. There, there is lots more options now to get sober. And I don't think it really matters as long as whatever you do, you stick with it and, and it works for you. So I don't think AA will ever be passe. I think it goes through different challenges. And I think it's great that we just have lots of different options. The pandemic certainly has changed so much. Number one, a lot more people seem to be drinking because of loneliness, yes. etc. Talk about for a minute how the pandemic affected sobriety. Yeah, it really did. We really did see a big increase in people's drinking. I mean, I think there was a couple of big things, loneliness. And then the second thing is our, our guardrails came off. So maybe you got home from work and you made dinner at 6 p.m. with a glass of wine, people were like, oh, I have a glass of wine at 3 o'clock because, you know, there was yeah. nothing to stop. And I think, you know, lots of people were frightened. There was a lot of anxiety. People lost jobs. And we have been conditioned in our culture to use alcohol to cope with difficult feelings. That's the other thing. You've had a hard day at work, then have a glass of alcohol or two or three to deal with how you feel rather than actually deal with how you feel. I also think what I've seen happen is people who are kind of going down the road of having an alcohol problem, what the, the last few years has done is accelerated that. So instead of maybe seeing them five to eight years time, I'm seeing them now because it just took all the guardrails away. They use alcohol to cope. There was no days kind of blurred into one. So it just accelerated them getting to a place where it really was a problem that they couldn't avoid dealing with. I think this is going to see years of mental health problems and subsequent addiction problems because of the pandemic. I think you're right. So let's go over the five pillars. I love the first one the most, movement. 
it's so simple. And I'm sure a lot of people would think, duh, why didn't I think of that sooner? Get my body moving and maybe I would feel less of a compunction to pick up a drink. Yeah, the research into exercise is really overwhelming. I mean, obviously, we know it's good for our physical health, but for our mental health, it's the best treatment for depression. And I feel like when I work with clients, it's an easy way to get started. And it's not about doing an Ironman or anything like that. It's just (laughs) about moving your body because you will get the serotonin kick that will lift your mood and makes all the difference. Because when we have been using alcohol, it's a central nervous system depressant. So it depresses us. We It affects our brain chemistry. And we need to do whatever we can to kind of get that back to normal. But it also, it's about taking 30 minutes for yourself that you are worth this, that you deserve this. That I just tell my clients, go walk. Put your headphones on, walk, music, podcast, whatever. And try and do that most days. And if you do that for 30 days, you will notice a difference in how you feel. Your mood will be lifted. So the first pillar is movement. It is exercise. But it's also about being conscious of the direction your life is going in. Because I know I felt when I was drinking, I was drifting. Like I was just, I wasn't really purposeful about what I wanted to be, what I wanted to achieve in my life. We can kind of drift and live by other people's expectations of us. So movement is about really taking stock of where you are, what you want to move towards, and what you want to move away from. And just doing that by degrees. Yeah, That's the first pillar. So do you want me to go through the rest? Yes, please. Connection is the second one. You probably might be familiar with the work of Brené Brown, who talks mm-hmm. about vulnerability and connection. And there's also another great book that I used when I, in research called, there's one about loneliness that was written by Surgeon General. So loneliness is one of the defining characteristics of having an alcohol problem. We isolate ourselves because we feel embarrassed and a bit shameful and we feel not good enough and we start telling ourselves stories that people don't want us around, that kind of stuff. Even if we're surrounded by people, which was my case, I you know, had lots of groups of friends. I never felt truly connected to them. I felt like I was behind a glass screen and they were one side and I was the other. And I couldn't just couldn't really connect. So connection is a cornerstone of an alcohol-free life. And I want to say also the five pillars are just personal development tools that anybody could use. They're not just for people who struggle with an alcohol problem. We need three levels of connection. We need intimacy, a friendship, and community. And the intimacy is not about necessarily a romantic partner. It's about a best friend or a mentor. It's it's just a very close relationship with somebody who deeply knows us. And then we need connections with friends, and we need to be part of our community. But there's only one pathway to connection, and that's through vulnerability. We have to, for meaningful connection, we have to be real. And we are a culture where we we believe that vulnerability was a weakness and that it's not, it's a strength. So it's really learning how to form connection and attachments with people because that fills us up more than anything else does. Then the next pillar is balance. Whatever the question, balance is always the answer. And it's about balancing our needs. We all have different needs at different times in our life. So we have career needs, education, health, family, spiritual needs, physical needs, all of that kind of stuff. And here's the thing. As our circumstances change, so do our needs change and how we meet our needs. Now, I'm thinking like before I got married, I had plenty of time to exercise. I was always doing like workshops and personal development and seeing my friends and all that kind of stuff. 
And then when I had kids, I still wanted to see my friends and exercise, but I had zero time and zero energy. And I had to rebalance how I did that. Because when we get out of balance, we begin to feel uncomfortable in our own skin. And if we feel like that for too long, we will look for an anesthetic to change that. So it's about the art of balance, something that we have to practice for the rest of our lives in, in recognizing what our needs are and how we meet them. And then the last two pillars kind of go together. The next one is process, which is really understanding ourselves and understanding how our past has shaped us. It's, our past shows up in our present. That's unavoidable. We're all shaped by our childhoods and how we were parented and experiences that we had. And we often can default to alcohol as a way to deal with some of that pain or hurt or the unpleasant stuff that's come from that. And I think everybody carries around something like that to some degree. The process is about when you get to a point where you feel stable in your sobriety, really understanding what shaped you and why you feel the way you do about certain things and why you have certain responses and and all of that kind of stuff. It's about having boundaries. It's about understanding attachment patterns. When I got sober, I had such a just car crash relationship. I was incapable of really having a healthy romantic relationship and it all went back to my father leaving and belief systems I had and all of that kind of stuff. So I just got to a point where that was so painful, I had to do some deeper work to change it. And it paid off with my husband for almost 17 years. So yeah, so it's really about letting go of the stuff no longer serves us. So we can, we can really, you know, be, live the life that we, that we want to live. And then growth is the reward of all of this. There's a universal law of life. We're either growing or we're dying. And if you look around, you'll see that to be true in nature in communities and business and people. When we get sober, we get the call to growth. We get there's something inside all of us that's calling us to, uh, you know, opportunities and, and to learn things and to do things that we, that we wouldn't do before. And with growth always comes a little bit of fear because it's going, we're going into something new, but that's what we were, what we're here to do. And the great thing about being sober is we have the bandwidth to honor that growth. It's almost like a superpower because you don't, you're never hungover. You're not obsessing about alcohol. You have tons of energy. You feel yeah. pretty good. So you have this extra bandwidth to really dedicate to what's calling you to grow. Whether it's a hobby or a job opportunity or a book you want to read or a person you want to meet or whatever, that's what life is about. And that's really the reward of doing all this work. I also wanted to segue now, if there is somebody in your life you notice is going down the, a, a bad path with alcohol, what do you advise? You, you can see something bad unfolding. What do you do? Do you step in or how would you handle that? Oh, I'm going to say it's very hard. People don't take kindly to being told that they have an alcohol problem. Yes. So I would, to be honest, avoid doing that. I think Number one, the first thing, the most important thing is to just retain the connection and listening and not judging because at some point that connection will be the lifeline that they may use to make some changes in their life. I also think presenting an alcohol-free life as something positive and, and we're finally seeing more and more of that. I mean, this is a relatively new thing that we're seeing where people are just being way more public about being alcohol-free and showing like how great it is. And, and I really want that to continue because I think that that's really helpful to 
people. And I think it's helping people stop drinking much earlier because the biggest thing, the biggest barrier, it usually, the research shows it takes about 10 years from the first moment someone starts to be concerned about their drinking to when they actually stop. And the reason that it takes 10 years is because of those belief systems that I was talking about that, okay, I get the alcohol bad for me and I've embarrassed myself and I don't like being hung over, but I don't, if I stop drinking, I'm never going to have fun again and I'm never going to belong and I'm never, how am I going to relax and reward myself at the end of the week? People don't want to give up that, which makes perfect sense. I didn't want to give up that, but that's the bit that's not true. So it's kind of finding ways to present the the alternative. Exactly. Yeah, when I used to work with teenagers, one of the things I used to do was we would, there's actually tons of very, you know, celebrities, well, well-known people. Yes. And I would always try and find celebrities that were close to their age. You know, there's a few that popped into my, like Kelvin Harris, that kind of thing. And be like, they don't drink. They don't drink or use drugs. Billie Eilish. Eilish. Mm-hmm. I don't know I get the name. Last name. <laughs> you know, she doesn't drink. And it's like, oh, she looks like she's having a pretty good time, right? I mean, so it's kind of presenting that these people aren't weird and a lot of them didn't stop because they had a problem. They just thought that it wasn't a benefit and they wanted to live a fully expansive life. When you think about it, if it takes 10 years, I mean, that could be all your 20s when it's so important what you're doing and the inroads you're making into your career and your relationships. And I mean... You could wipe out your whole 20s if you if you didn't react quicker. Yeah. Yeah. And some people do. And, you know, the other thing is, I mean, that's what I did. I was I I managed to graduate college and I had a job, but I really wasn't going anywhere. I was in a holding pattern. I knew what I wanted to do this Saturday night, but that was about it. I want to say when you work the five pillars or when you work a program of sobriety, all of what happened in the past is not wasted. It can be turned into wisdom. I am Mm -hmm. who I am because of what I went through and what I learned from it. So do I want my kids to go through it? No, of course not. And I want everyone to find this path as quickly as possible. And and I'm hoping that as we are more public about living an alcohol-free life and it's actually becoming more accepted and less challenged, then we can hopefully bring that down and see people stop drinking earlier and earlier. I like the fact you also have resources in the back of your book. Very helpful. Tons of resources there. Anything else you want to to add? I mean, you were you were fabulous. Oh, thank you. Well, <laughs> I, my biggest message is I want everybody to know that you don't give up anything when you get sober. It's the complete opposite. You gain. Mm-hmm. It just gets better. Sometimes it requires some effort. You can't do it alone. But there's so many people out there struggling, and there's a huge community online and in person living this life. So find your people, and I promise that it gets better. Well said.